0: And welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and this podcast is where I share my research and ramblings about books, films, and games set in impossible and improbable worlds. This week, I'm celebrating one year of podcasting! Woo! (laughs) Now, I have to readily admit that most of that was taken up delivering content for my courses rather than doing necessarily delivery of what I'm researching. Uh, And admittedly, that's where the podcast is about to go again, but that's COVID. Um, And yet in my defense, I delivered two episodes a week from January to March um, when I was doing the apocalyptic course and course on horror movies. Um, so I'm still considering it an achievement. Uh, it was my first year doing it. I, I think, you know, I, I listened to the early episodes and, and I'm listening to my opening crawl and it's like, wow, that's really a crawl. Way back at the beginning, it was like, welcome to Triple Bladed. And <laughs> it's very careful. And now I've got that down to like this snappy little patter. Um, and it's only been 44 episodes instead of 52. But, you know, you got to take care of yourself, especially especially while you've got a pandemic going on. Uh, the fall season of Triple Bladed Sword is going to still be one of my courses, and it's going to be one of my courses that I think is super valuable. It's really practical, but it isn't necessarily the sort of thing that you listen to on your drive and go, well, that was really entertaining. It's my analysis and argument course. It's like the first year how to write a research paper course. And it's not going to have much of the science fiction, fantasy and horror content as a result. I occasionally talk about Godzilla because I get my students to read articles either about Hiroshima or Godzilla. But it's not going to be like, woo, Godzilla fandom. Um, but I'm going to try to drop in what I want to re rabbit trails. I was thinking instead of office visits, um, I thought I would just call it rabbit trails because then I could really, you know, my uh, my eldest or my youngest child asked me the other day if I would do if I would tell this story that I've told a, a bunch of times when I was an itinerant speaker uh, and I was like, well, it's not really research. And they were like, yeah, but, you know, it's like when a, when you get a teacher talking about something and they, you know, it's a it's rabbit trail. Right. So I thought, oh, that would be fun. So I want to do some of those as well. Um, and at the very least, Anita's getting her cabin in the woods request in October. And then in the winter, my steampunk course is going to take front and center here at the podcast. So that'll be very much science fiction and fantasy, not so much horror, um, unless you're horrified by cogs and corsets. Um, And I'm really excited about that. I think that's going to be great. So, um, but today... I thought it would be fun to do sort of part two of what I did last year when I started the podcast. I I did a a podcast about the sword and the sorcerer, which literally has a triple-bladed sword in it. And I talked a bit about the three blades of, you know, the reading, showing, and playing modes of engagement that uh, linda hutchin talks about in her book a theory of adaptation but i thought i would be a little more free form this time and rather than just looking at one film i would um talk about that whole you know the whole idea of adaptation and why i'm interested in looking at narratives in these different modes rather than just you know saying like you know the the, the book is always better than the movie, right? This idea that we have. And uh, I saw a cartoon online that was like labeling the anatomy of a bookworm. Uh, To read list never seems to get smaller. Check. Spending too much money on books. Again, check. Wishing there was a perfume of ink and paper on uh, the new books. Check. The ideal date location is a bookstore or library check, etc. And then there's this one that says C's movie, the book was better. So I'm reading through this thing and I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. You know, dream home includes a library with rolling ladders. Yeah, you better <gasps> love it. And then it says C's movie, the book was better. And I'm like, no, that's not how I feel. So, you know, th- that, that cartoon doesn't resonate with me. There's another cartoon that I saw where you've got this book uh, and there's a bunch of little books sitting by, by the fireside, which I think is an odd, you know, they're all, endangering their lives by sitting right next to the fire. Um, but the big book says, and then, he's telling a ghost story, after they had ripped out half of her pages, they turned her into a movie! And all the little books are like, oh my god, the horror! Right? The book is always better than the movie. It's this chestnut that we've got. Um, some transcription from a Facebook discussion that I saw years ago. Uh, okay, the book is always, and I mean always, better um, and this was commentary on this, that, that earlier, uh, cartoon, The Anatomy of a Bookworm. Okay. The book is always, and I mean always better. And come on, a library with rolling ladders in your house. Um, I thought the movie version of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, someone replies, was better than the book. But that is the exception that proves the rule. What the? Hell, does that even mean? Um, why is that the exception that proves the rule? Because One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the greatest movie ever made. It is admittedly one of the greatest movies ever made. But I've never read the book, so I couldn't say. But the exception that proves the rule? Come on, you gotta say more than that. Um, but on the whole, somebody says, yes, you're probably right. But on the whole, the book is always better. And my imagination regarding the people is way better than the people they cast in the roles in movies. Always? Always? Really? Wow. You know, it, it, there's just this tacit assumption as they come in that that, that that regardless of whether or not they enjoy it, the book is always better than the movie. Um, and then there's this book club bouncer cartoon, single panel cartoon, where this woman is being escorted out of a book club By this guy in a black t shirt, and he's got sunglasses, and he's, you know, bald, because I guess bald guys are tough when they kick you out of places. He looks like a bouncer. And somebody says, Anyone else think the movie was better? Just incredible levels of what Robert Stamm calls logophilia logophilia. The love of the word, the love of books. I love books. I love the physical feel of books. I'm one of those people who wants that perfume. I remember, you know, so many times I'll buy a book and it's it's really new. It still has that smell of printing press ink. And I love that smell of the smell of a new book. I like to look for books in bookstores. I like to search for them like treasures in used bookstores. But... I do not agree that the book is always better than the movie, and the instance that I use more than any other one is because I'm you. Back in the day, I was usually having this conversation with people who are like, "Why the last Harry Potter movie they went and saw sucked so bad?" And it was like, "Because they didn't include the whole thing about the house elves," and I'm like, "But that's that would have taken away from the, the main narrative." Uh, if there's one thing that we can say uh, about J.K. Rowling as a writer, it's that she meanders. She meanders. When, she did, when her editor can't stop her, she meanders. But anyhow, there's this scene, and I, I'm not going to explain the Harry Potter universe to you if you don't know what that is. I'm sorry. You're going to have to go and, and use Wikipedia. Uh, I just don't feel like that's something that I need to summarize for you. But I will summarize a little bit of the action from uh, one of the books called Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is the fifth book in in the Harry Potter series. Now, I'm specifically looking at the film instance of this, um, simply because the second part comes in uh, the film version of one of the later movies, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. But there's this just odious woman who, she's a teacher initially, and then she becomes the headmaster of Harry's school. And she her name is Dolores Umbridge. And, um, I mean, as... As played by Imelda Staunton, I think uh, goes is is neck and neck for the most evil villain in the history of 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 fiction. Um, You know, this woman this woman can go toe to toe with Sauron or in in the Harry Potter universe, Voldemort. She's just so awful, and she gets Harry to write, literally write on his hand that. You know, I mustn't tell lies because he he had lied about something. So, I mustn't tell lies, and or she thought he had, and he is literally scribing this into his hand because of this magic pen that she makes him write with, and so he's cutting himself. It's it's just an incredibly dark moment, um, in you know, in children's fiction. with, with this you know just this whole sense of like what that would do to a child's self-worth and whatnot uh it's just monstrous and when when I remember watching it in the theaters and thinking this is just terrible when I, I remember reading it in the book too but it didn't have the same impact on me that sort of immediacy that that cinema can have on us and I want to make it abundantly clear that I am in no way arguing that film is better than books okay as a as a medium I'm not arguing that but I'm just explaining why I don't buy the book is always better than the movie chestnut um so later on, so he has to you know he cut he's cut he's cut this into his hand he's literally scarred himself with these words, and then you know a few books few movies later harry potter Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows there's this scene where Harry is disguised and he's snuck into this place where Dolores umbridge is uh, um judging judging people for breaking the law and she's clearly skewing or doctoring the evidence to ensure an outcome that she wants the 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 government that she now works for um is completely totalitarian it's fascist it's you know it has this kind of power and harry uh in this scene um you know, he gets this opportunity to respond to the question, what on earth are you doing, Albert? Because Dolores thinks that he's this other agent of the same organization that she works for. And Harry gets to reply, you're lying, Dolores, and one mustn't tell lies. And then he zaps her. And I remember being in the theater and wanting to stand up and applaud. I was so overjoyed. And I thought, you know, I don't remember that from the book, but admittedly, I had read, uh, the Deathly Hallows so fast trying to figure out like who lived, who died, what happened, um, that I I might've forgotten about it. I, I just might've skimmed over it. So when I got home, I went and I checked the book and I opened up to that page and it's not in there. So one of my favorite moments from the Harry Potter series simply isn't in the books. And I think that that's indicative of not that idea that, you know, that 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 commenter said that the this is the exception that proves the rule. But rather, this is simply the this to me, these are the exceptions, stuff like this. These are the exceptions that prove that that rule is bullshit. That's what this proves is that you can have a moment in film that's just as good as what you got in the book. And there are arguably many things that film can do that books can't. And likewise, things that books can do that films can't. But there are lots of books that have been made into films... And we don't really even think of the books anymore. Like, sure, Peter Benchley's Jaws is probably still occasionally sold, but most people think of the Steven Spielberg film. Nobody even knows that Die Hard, the first Die Hard movie, even had a book to be based on. Planet of the Apes. Have you read the book? Probably not. Did you know it exists? Yeah, it's French. It doesn't get a lot of, you know, there, there wasn't like a million translations of it. Why is that? Potentially because the book just wasn't that good. And the film was effectively able to elevate the content. There are a number of people who think that that's precisely what happened with Peter Benchley's Jaws, that 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 the, that the content was elevated by the film. Um, William Blatty's book, The Exorcist, amazing book, turned into an amazing film. So not better than, just as good as. And I would say that that's probably the same with... Philip K. Dick's "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" being turned into the amazing film *Blade Runner*. There are some people who would argue that *Blade Runner* is better. I would argue that they're they're di- they're so distinct as narrative works that they are each on their own really fabulous, just fabulous. And I would love for the book is better than the, a book is always better than the movie, people. Because I know there's a bunch of you who love *Anne of Green Gables*. You love the TV show. I'm talking about the 1985 one made in Canada with Megan Follows as the title character. You absolutely love it, and I doubt very much. I, I I doubt very much that you would say that the book was better than the movie in that particular case. In fact, I would wager to say that the majority of people who love the TV series of Anne of Green Gables from 1985 watched it, and then they read the book. And it's only because we have been programmed to sort of have this sense of logophilia, that we, we say the book is always better than the movie. I remember when I was, um, when I was reading to a, a friend who was in palliative carry, who we knew he was dying, and we were reading Lord of the Rings to him. And it was an absolutely fantastic experience. And uh, one of the nurses came in and he looked at us and he said, oh, what are you guys doing? And we said, well, we're reading Lord of the Rings. And he goes, oh, I love Tolkien. Tolkien. And then he stopped and he said, no, admittedly, I've only ever seen the movies. And you could, just, you could just hear in his voice that there was a sense of shame that he hadn't read the books. And, and we were like, it's cool, man. We love the movies, too. In fact, I think that in some cases, and I know there are Tolkien purists who would burn me at the stake. I think that there are things that the films did that were an improvement on the books. Or that I can simply say that there are these two, there are these two versions. There's Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and there's Jackson's Lord of the Rings. And I know again that there are Tolkien purists that say there is only Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and there is no other Lord of the Rings. Bullshit. That's just not true. We know that now. There's Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. There's Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Uh, there was... BBC Radio's amazing audio dramatization with Ian Holm, the guy who played Bilbo in the the first Peter Jackson films. Um, he was Frodo in that audio version. And, uh, you know, so he got to be in Middle Earth twice. Uh, but it's it was fabulous. For the longest time, it was like, it was the bar for excellence for a Lord of the Rings adaptation. And I saw in the 1980s, I got to see a giant puppet stage production. The puppets were massive. Like the hobbits were about five feet tall. And so everything else was like on big stilts and sticks and stuff. And it was phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely loved it. But they condensed all three books into about 90 minutes. So, I mean, you want to talk about adaptation. Whee-hoo-wah. It was done by a, uh, a French company called Theatre Sans Fil. And it was phenomenal. I wish somebody, you know, I wish somebody could have filmed that and made a DVD out of it. We didn't have DVDs back then, so I don't even know why I'm saying that. But my point is, is that we have lots of instances where we have really great adaptations of works and yet people are still programmed to say the book is always better than the movie. I just don't think that's true. Linda Hutchin in On the Art of Adaptation says, So often, film's relation to literature has been characterized as a tampering, a deformation, a desecration, an infidelity. Like, we use that word, right? Is this film, fide- if, you know, does it have fidelity with its original text? Um, a betrayal a perversion, right? You ruined my childhood. And it doesn't even have to be a book is better than the movie. We're also very big on like the original is always better than whatever comes later. But this is nothing new. As Hutchins states, the desire to transfer a story from one medium or one genre to another. I love this is great. The idea, not just that we transfer stories from one medium to another, but that potentially we may transfer a story to another genre. Right? Like when you take the story of Superman, which is a standard superhero story, and you make the movie Brightburn. Um, that's a horror movie. So you've transferred the story of Superman over to the genre, from the genre of straight-up heroic superhero tale to a horror narrative. Um, and this desire to transfer stories from one medium to another... Or one genre to another is neither new nor rare, says Hutchin in Western culture, nor any culture for that matter. It is, in fact, so common that we might suspect that it is somehow the inclination of the human imagination. Let me say that again: it is, in fact, so common that we might suspect that it is somehow the inclination of the human imagination. And despite the dismissive tone of some critics, I wouldn't even use the word critics. i just use anybody who needs to look down their nose at somebody else because they did read their narrative and and there is a sort of there is some ableism going on there um because maybe you know somebody didn't have the opportunity that you did when they were a kid to get super literate and so books for them are just everest and so they take their narratives in uh in, in through the optic nerve uh, in just a different way right um and despite the dismissive tone of some critics, not necessarily a secondary or derivative act. And my examples for this are all taken from Homer's The Odyssey. So there's the classic, there's the original, Homer's The Odyssey. Now, I what kills me about people saying, oh, the book is always better than the movie, is that I don't know that many people who read ancient epic poetry so like if i take somebody to see a film version of the odyssey and i say you know oh the book is always better than the movie and they were agreeing at that point i'd be like did you even read the odyssey when did you ever read the odyssey you know unless somebody forced you to do it in university and even then you probably only read an excerpt so you know and really epic poetry is that how is that your favorite like mode Of getting narrative now, like you just totally dig Homer's style, you dig his you know diction, you dig his meter and his you know rhyme. What? No, Um, never mind. Some of the best versions of Homer's Odyssey are completely infidelitous to to Homer. Uh, Oh, brother, where art thou? Is you know this wonderful. Talk about transferring from one genre to another, right? Comedic version of the Odyssey as rendered by the Brothers Cohen or Bolt. Seriously, Bolt, the Disney animated film that features the voice of John Travolta and Miley Cyrus. Bolt is the Odyssey. Trust me on this. Go back and watch it again. It's, it's you know, just the, the name of the owner of the dog is Penelope. Penny, right? Um, same name as Odysseus' wife. And the whole point of the Odyssey is trying to get home. Trust me, Bolt is a version of the Odyssey. There's even a Cyclopean villain. Um, the movie Cold Mountain with Jude Law and Nicole Kidman and Renee Zellweger, which won, you know, uh, all sorts of accolades for being an excellent film in its own right, set during the time of the Civil War. But, I mean, you just look at the the paratext for that, the poster, Find Your Way Home. And it's not just that every story about homecoming is the Odyssey. No, 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 no. Trust me on this again. Cold Mountain is 100% an adaptation of the Odyssey, but it's been transferred not only between mediums, but it's been transferred between genres in that particular case. And it's like uh, science fiction writer uh, Tim Powers said um, when someone asked him if he was worried about what Disney was going to do with his book on Stranger Tides when they were making it into a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And, and Powers said, no, I'm not worried because if they do a good job, and I love the, the schutzpah of this particular response, that he would say... He says if they do a good job, we'll have two great stories. Which, of course, says that he knew that his own was a pretty damn good story, and it is. It's a wonderful novel. Disney didn't do a great job with that, but nevertheless, Powers's um, concept stands. It's the author themselves saying, "I'm not fussed about whether or not fidelity is there, so long as they do a good job. If they tell a good story, and but they deviate completely from my work, uh, a, it doesn't matter to me because they already paid me the rights and." B, it doesn't matter to me because if they do a good job, we're going to get two great stories. Right? Um, Hutchins says, and she, here she's quoting Robert Stamm, who I've been talking about earlier. The hierarchy that claims that the book is always better than the movie is based in a mix of what Robert Stamm calls iconophobia, a suspicion of the visual and logophilia, a love of the word. And we, we can love books intensely and still this is the thing we can also love the films and we can love them as separate things i bring this up because uh, there are a couple of adaptations that are coming out this fall and i'm seeing my friends scrambling to get ready for it to get ready for it and you know what if this makes you happy just keep doing it but I guess I, the thing is, is I, I don't feel like you have to. Don't feel like you have to do what? Read the book before you watch the movie. When Game of Thrones came out, I deliberately did not read the book. I hadn't read it at that point, and I still haven't read it. I wanted to enjoy the TV series completely like I was, you know, regular guy who isn't going to read the books uh, and just enjoy it for that. Just enjoy it as this television adaptation. And I did enjoy it for that. I had a friend who was like a big Game of Thrones fan. He was always like, you got to read the books, you got to read the books. And I'm like, but you're always angry about what they're not doing. I don't want to be angry like you. I just want to enjoy this, right? Uh, I think about uh, the, you know, Foundation is coming out this fall. An adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation, which my God, if they, if they follow what, Asimov did in the first chapters of that book. It is going to be so incredibly timely in terms of, you know, a narrative that I think uh, the world needs to hear. Um, Dune, Frank Herbert's Dune, we're getting a, what looks to be an absolutely tremendous and critical praise for uh, the advanced critical praise for this version of Dune is considerable. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Uh, and in, in both of those cases, by the way, I'm reading those books in advance. But uh, on the one, it's because I, I read Dune a bunch of times. It's not like I need to review it before I go see the movie. It's just I love the book and I want to have that narrative in my head. I like Frank Herbert's Dune and with Isaac Asimov's foundation, it was born out m- more of a nostalgia. My, my Oma, my grandmother, uh, gave me the trilogy of foundation when I was quite young and I tried to read it when I was in grade five and it just went whew, right over my head and I never got back around to it. And so, you know, this is a, this is a book that I should have read already as a scholar of science fiction. Uh, and technically I did, but I, I couldn't remember anything about it. And so I'm like, I want to get into it. And so I'm, I'm reading it out of those reasons. I'm not like I, I need to read it so that I can do the checklist when I go to see the movie. But uh, a lot of the time, I think that's the reason that, that people do that. Or they just feel like, they feel like they have to do this like in advance or they, they can't go see the movie. Like you, you're not cleared to go see the movie until you've read the book. And I I just think that's ridiculous, especially in instances where you didn't even know a book existed. Right? Like, how many people, when they went to see Hidden Figures, read the book before they went to see the movie? Or even afterwards? Why? Because it was nonfiction? Because it was real? Because it was history? Uh, that movie took all sorts of liberties with history. Um, and it's interesting to me that, that quite often movies made about history are are better than the truth (laughs) that's sometimes how i feel about that i'll like go and i'll look at what really happened and you're like oh that's a bit of a letdown that particularly moving scene never occurred or they compiled five people into one character to simplify the plot for cinema which is something that you need to do when you're making a film and then there's uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time is coming out on uh, Amazon as a TV series this fall. And and right there, I mean, you want to talk about people losing their shit about fidelity, there's all these people who are upset that there are people of color playing characters that a lot of Robert Jordan's fans have always imagined as white people. And there's really nothing in the text to support that. It it's not like, well, these are all definitely Caucasian. Uh, The only thing that might lead you to believe that would have been Daryl K. Sweet's art on the original um, books uh, of the the Wheel of Time series, Uh, all of which, by the way, are terrible adaptations. You want to talk about adaptations that are not fidelitous to the content inside? Uh, Daryl K. Sweet's uh, illustrations for the covers of robert jordan's wheel of time are a great example was, there's websites devoted to like what who which character is this even or are these supposed to be the villains because they don't look anything like it but another example of this that i like to to share with people is is true grit uh, charles portis's fabulous book true grit which was originally turned into a movie with john wayne in 1969 and then again the coen brothers bringing us another adaptation uh right but in this case unlike "O oh brother where art thou which is a genre shift uh the coen brothers true grit is actually more fidelitous to the book and yet my mother was like you know the only version of true grit that's worth seeing is the john wayne one and then she went and saw it she went and saw it uh, the new one with uh, uh, with Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon and Josh Brolin um, and a very young Haley Steinfeld. And she was blown away. She said it was absolutely fantastic. And I was working with Westerns as some of my research, and I read Portis's True Grit. And what I was particularly impressed by, and it's something that um, the John Wayne version never really pulls off, is how they were able to suffuse the film with the religion of the narrator because maddie ross as narrator throughout portis's novel quotes scripture references things that are related to this really deep and abiding faith and there isn't room to have those sorts of asides in the in the dialogue of true grit but the film's soundtrack utilizes a famous hymn as his sort of lead motif or light motif throughout Uh, the film. And so you have that music in the background. And if you're aware of what the, the lyrics are, then you're aware of, of that. And that's just, that's just good adaptation. But there's this idea in, in what my mom was saying that the, you know, whatever comes first is the best. And so you get that a lot, right? Well, that's not like the original or that's not, you know, what they did originally. They're changing it. They're, they're, you know, they're changing the character. Um, and Hutchins says to be second is not to be secondary. Or inferior. Likewise, to be first is not to be originary or authoritative. Like stories are always derivative, they're always derivative of other stories. And one of the best examples of this idea of, you know, to be second is not to be secondary or inferior uh, is The Wizard of Oz. L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz as a children's book is incredible if you can find a version that features ww denslow's art which is a masterful merging of text and image uh in many ways i think anticipating where comics were going to go in the 20th century um if you if you can read it that way it's absolutely fantastic but i remember reading the wonderful wizard of oz for the first time in some other prestige edition which only had a few pictures throughout but it was mostly text and thinking my gosh this is dull Uh, Baum wasn't a great writer, or at least he's not considered a critically great writer. um, but he was a great storyteller and paired with a great artist could make a great children's book. But what I think is interesting is that the, the, you know, again, the people who would say the book is always better than the movie. Do you think that's true with the Wizard of Oz? Yes. Did you ever read the Wizard of Oz? No. Well, then how can you say that? Because, and, and it's, it's interesting to read Salman Rushdie's, uh, BFI film classics book on The Wizard of Oz, because he says, he thinks the film one-upped the book. He thinks that the MGM film with Judy Garland and the wonderful musical tunes won uh, up the book, and 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 it's also interesting, even just to note that the trajectory from book to film uh, involved Baum. Baum, you know, wanted it to be a staged uh, performance, and and the the versions that were done on stage sometimes had songs that had nothing to do with the narrative. And so by the time you got to the MGM film, people had seen live stage versions of this many times, and they had a love for the Scarecrow that had nothing to do with its representation in Baum's original book. So many people almost... I think more people are familiar with the MGM Wizard of Oz than are familiar with the book. And Hutchins says this about that. We may actually read or see that so-called original after we have experienced the adaptation, thereby challenging the authority of any notion of priority. And I think about my son's experience growing up with all the different Lego video games and that those often predated his exposure to the narratives that they were based on. So like him playing Lego Lord of the Rings was definitely before he saw Lord of the Rings. Him playing Star Wars Lego was before he would sit down to watch, you know, the entire Star Wars movie. He'd watch bits and pieces, but it just couldn't hold his attention. Um... And so he, he would have an experience of Star Wars that began with the Lego video games. But again, I think that this is true in, in this filmic, you know, sort of, you watch the film and then you go read the book. Uh, Lots of people went to read Lord of the Rings and you get all these jokes now about like, well, it's, it's, it's an interesting book, but it's mostly walking, right? You know, various jokes that have been made about this. Uh, The film is definitely faster paced and... Um, has certain emotional resonances that the book doesn't Uh, in terms of character arcs, like Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, the the character who, you know, is destined to be king. In Tolkien's book, walks in and he's, I'm the king. You just get king vibes off of him from the get-go. Whereas in the movie, there's this hesitancy to be the king. And it makes for a very interesting character arc. That again is not me saying that I think that one is better than the other. They just tell different stories. Or I should say they tell different narratives in that sense of narratology where the story is simply the events that occur and the narrative is the way that that's conveyed to us. I think about this again with the Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Uh when we think about uh you know the 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 Broadway musical The Wiz which was recently turned into The Wiz Live on Television a televised version and that was fascinating because in I think for many people The Wiz did something that changed the narrative of the Wonderful Wizard of Oz and made it accessible to them. Uh I've I've read a number of of um Accounts where, you know, people, uh, African-Americans, black people, seeing The Wiz or just listening to the soundtrack or seeing the movie that was based on the Broadway musical with Michael Jackson and Richard Pryor and Diana Ross would say, I I could finally see myself in Oz. And so an all black cast for The Wiz, which is, you know, it it moves away from a perfect retelling of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz um, is is what. Hutchin talks about when she says that there are many and varied motives behind adaptation and few involve faithfulness, right? Like if you want to be perfectly faithful to a work, it begs the question why you needed to make it at all, which is what some people have leveled at Zack Snyder for his uh, frame for frame recreation, cinematic recreation of the panels from the comic book of uh, Alan Morris, The Watchman. Um, what's interesting about The Wiz, though, again, is that even though it does digress from what we think of as the narrative of The Wizard of Oz via the MGM film, it is true to the book in ways that the MGM film is not. Um, but the reason that The Wiz does what it does has nothing to do with wanting to be fidelitous to Baum. We know that Dorothy is uh, white from the, the images that Denslow created for the book. Uh, the Wiz was not interested in that sort of fidelity. They had varied motives behind their adaptation. They were not interested in faithfulness. They were interested in creating a version of The Wizard of Oz that Black people could see themselves in. And for me, personally, I like The Wiz live. It's my favorite version. I've seen a ton of, of versions or read a ton of versions of Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite areas of study for adaptation because there are so many different versions. But I love the music for The Wiz live. I just absolutely love it. And I love the performances. Uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful adaptation. And um, For my money, it's one of the best for The Wizard of Oz or Wicked for that matter, which is also, you know, people are like, oh, I just love Wicked. Did you read the book? Some people love the book. I'm not a fan of the book. I'm not a big fan of Gregory Maguire's uh, approach to um, retelling stories. It's just a little too gritty for me, I guess. Uh, But I don't think it's bad. I, I think he's good at what he does. I just don't enjoy it. And I love the Broadway musical of *Wicked*, which again is not fidelitous to its source material. And so here we have like several removes from the original story. Like, how do we decide what the original is in that particular case? Is it Gregory Maguire's novel, or do we have to go all the way back to Baum? And, you know, Maguire's building his version of Oz out of this amalgam, not only of Baum's works, but also of our impression of the MGM movie. One more instance, by the way, of this idea that there are many and varied motives behind adaptation and few involve faithfulness. So think back to uh, Gore Verbinski's version of The Lone Ranger, uh, which was released to great controversy and critical panning. Um largely over the casting of Johnny Depp as Tonto, because Johnny Depp is not uh, an Indigenous actor. And, I mean, there was an argument apparently made for he had some, uh, you know, uh, ancestry, uh, Indigenous ancestry at some point. But there were a lot of people who said, no, this, this character should have been played by an Indigenous actor. And I think that if, if the only thing that Gore Verbinski was interested in was just saying Tonto is a Native American, then they would have been right. But that's not what Verbinski's Lone Ranger is trying to do. Um, Right at the beginning of the film, we see Johnny Depp as a very old Tonto standing on a stage with this label underneath him. And it says the Noble Savage. And the Noble Savage is this concept. It's a map, not the territory of what real Indigenous people were like. It was this um, vision of indigenous peoples through the lens of a number of artists and storytellers who crafted an idea of what indigenous people were like that wasn't necessarily true to their lived experiences. And Tonto is is born out of that entire tradition. Tonto is a, an Indian of the Wild West as mediated by cinema. And I think Verbinski is interested in this film in Critiquing that, criticizing it. Depp's Tonto is the most over-the-top caricature of indigenous life. You know, he's he's mystical, he wears war paint, he says cryptic things, but in the end, he speaks broken English. Whereas all of the actors in the film who are actually indigenous people speak actual indigenous languages. Tonto hardly ever does. And there were a lot of people who were just like, I can't believe how, you know, uh, tone deaf uh, the, the filmmakers are being in this particular case. I don't think they were. I don't think they were. I think they were saying, you know what? The entire tradition of the character of Tonto is flawed and we are highlighting that. We are highlighting and, and the, the, the genuinely indigenous people in Verbinski's uh, Lone Ranger say... Uh, that, you know, Tonto's not a real Indian, that there's something wrong with him. And I think the entire film is saying Tonto is not a real Indian. The the entire character, all the way back to, you know, the the, the beginning of The Lone Ranger. And there, right there, is a really good reason to not be fidelitous to your source material. When Tonto apparently means idiot in Spanish. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. What I know is this. The character of Tonto as created... In the early Lone Ranger stuff is a racist caricature. And Verbinski's appropriation of that racist character as played by Johnny Depp is meant to sort of make that concept the fool. Now, did people pick up on that? No, because, you know, we're, we tend not to really watch films closely. We have this idea that movies are easy to watch and they just roll over our, you know, heads and super, super easy for us to just, you know, take in. And, and, and I don't think we watch them as, as, Um, wisely or in as sophisticated a way as we ought to, even in cases like a movie uh, like The Lone Ranger. Um, Finally, uh, Hutchins says, and this is not the last thing that she says, it's just the last thing I'm going to quote her on, is that whether it be in the form of a video game or a musical, an adaptation is likely to be greeted as minor and subsidiary and certainly never as good as the, quote, original. And nowhere, I think, can this be seen more clearly than in the incredibly vexed <laughs> um, journey of uh, making more Star Wars movies, uh, some of the star, some of the, the the films that have been made since the original Star Wars films are, admittedly, not very good when you just talk about them as as works of film. But there are others that have been very good, or at the very least, not as terrible as rabid Star Wars fans would make them out to be. And I actually think that there was no hope of overcoming the legendary status of A New Hope, which was originally just called Star Wars, in the minds of fans. And it's really, you know, like trying to come back and make more of these movies with a fandom that lives inside the canonical worlds of Star Wars is doomed ultimately, because they have this sense of the original that borders on religious fanaticism in the same way that, you know, I, I remember growing up with evangelical Christians who every time they made a Jesus movie, you know, were less fussed about the sense that like, it was like, why aren't you excited about the fact that they made another Jesus movie? Uh, and they'd be like, well, because they got such and such wrong. And I'm like, yeah, but they're always casting white people as Jesus. So what's the, what's, what's the buzz anyway? Tell me what's happening. Um, I mean, Max von Sydow played Jesus. I think it's cool that Max von Sydow played Jesus, by the way, because Max von Sydow also played the devil. I mean, you really got to work hard to get, like, Jesus the devil and to be the priest in The Exorcist. I mean, that guy's everywhere. But finally, rounding up with the three blades of telling, showing, playing, right? The science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. And I love all of those things. I like... You know, I like to read a book, I like to see the movie, and I like to play the game. Um, I don't just want to watch Star Wars, I want to read Star Wars. And I love, absolutely love, the novelization done by uh, young adult author Alexandra Bracken of the original Star Wars. And it's called uh, The Princess, The Scoundrel, and The Farm Boy. It's absolutely fantastic. It's told... from those perspectives in that order the first third of the book is told from princess leia's perspective the second third of the book is uh, told from han solo's perspective and the third uh, is from Luke's perspective. And it's just such a joy to read because, you know, then usually with a novelization, they just follow along with the characters in the way that the film follows along with the characters. But what books do that films don't, and it's, and this is what we often see when a book is made into a movie is that, you know, you stay with one or two characters for a good long while. Like somebody recently told me they were what reading uh, Leviathan Wakes, which is the first book in the series of The Expanse, uh, which was turned into a TV series. And when they turned it into a TV series, they went from multiple points of view, rather rather than just the, in you know, initially just one point of view, and then it moves on to two points of view, but still not the multifaceted point of view that the television series brings us, because books tend to stay in you know, one point of view at a time and for an extended period. And so Alexandra Bracken's The Princess, The Scoundrel, and The Farm Boy is just a joy to read because it's it's giving us perspectives that we didn't have from watching the original movie over and over again. And while we're on the subject of Star Wars uh, adaptations in that way, there's this great anthology of many science fiction and fantasy writers um, called A Certain Point of View. And it retells... Um, parts of, I guess, the larger narrative that we'd say would be coloring outside the lines of the original film, uh, going wildly beyond where Alexandra Bracken does, so that we even get the perspective of some of the Jawas or the the creature that's in the trash compactor, the Dianoga. I kid you not, there's an entire short story from the perspective of the Dianoga. It is such a fun book. Uh, the first, um, there's, there's, there's an entire um, short story done from the perspective of the, of the idiot who screwed up, in not, you know, noticing that there were droids inside the escape pod and he has to go to somebody to see if they can cover it up in bureaucratic paperwork. But I also love to play in the world of Star Wars. I've played the Fantasy Flight uh, role-playing game, which is a ton of fun. And what I find interesting about that is that people are most happy when they get to play characters that are either very, very similar to or right on the nose of the original characters. Um, Fantasy Flight games, uh, their starter set for the scum and villainy sort of uh, aspect of the Star Wars universe involves pre-generated characters that you can play as that are straight up Han Solo and Chewbacca. But they've also included a pre-gen character named Sasha, who, when you look at the art for it, looks like a very early Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie was the production artist for star Wars. looks like very early production art of when Luke was a girl and by the way, I hope that y'all heard me loud and clear on that one, because anyone who's had a problem with Ray in the last movies uh, needs to know that it was it was a completely arbitrary decision to make Luke a male at some point. But in very early drafts, Lucas was looking at making Luke a female. Uh, so this whole originary kind of like, the, this is the way things have to be is just, it's crap. And I also love Star Wars Battlefront. I love to play Battlefront. Why? Because I've been waiting my whole life to shoot down a TIE fighter with a rifle. Um, same thing with Lord of the Rings. I not love reading Tolkien's fiction. I love watching Peter Jackson's films. I like listening to the BBC audiobook. I've loved playing the Lego, uh, you know, video games, but I'm also completely jazzed about uh, the Adventures in Middle Earth series of role-playing games, role-playing books, which are for the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, but are derived from a completely separate uh, uh, role-playing game called The One Ring. Now, I didn't want to make my players learn a whole new rule set so we didn't go with the one ring rule set but it's amazing to be playing the dungeons and dragons rule set and yet have enough tweaks and sort of changes that the adventures in middle earth uh, role-playing game has has brought to it, that it feels like Tolkien's world. And this is coming from a guy who played a game called Middle-Earth Role-Playing for about 20 years of his life. Trust me, I know what feels like Tolkien's world and what doesn't. And Adventures in Middle-Earth certainly does. And I'm super excited that uh, Freja Ligen, Free League out of Sweden, has picked up the uh, intellectual property on that, the licensing for role-playing games based on Tolkien's world uh, because I love to play there I like to tell my own stories and I think this is the thing ultimately that I find really strange is that people are perfectly okay with gaming a story and it deviating wildly. But the moment that somebody makes a movie of it, it's as though it's been scribed in stone tablets and brought down off of a mountain from the gods. And that just simply isn't the case. I recently got a role-playing game based upon the Anglo-Saxon epic poem Beowulf. And there's this incredible foreword by Maria Devana Heedley, who translated a version of Beowulf, So, and she says this, stories offer justification for intense acts, as well as opportunities for unexpected empathy, analysis of wrongdoing, and brainstorming of better ways to build societies. The Beowulf story is no different. Experiencing a story like this one through role-playing game is an invitation to imagine and elaborate upon the world of the poem from the inside. And anyone who knows anything about the Beowulf poem will know that there are people who are like, this is monstrously, uh, it's macho, it's racist, or it's at the very least, it's xenophobic. Um, there's all sorts of problems with the Beowulf poem. And Headley would know about that conversation. And she's saying... This is an invitation to imagine and elaborate upon the world of the poem of Beowulf from the inside. To play this game is to link hands with a long chain of poets, performers, and translators. God, I love that. Like, here's an academic saying, you play this game, you're one of the people who's doing what the original poet of Beowulf likely did, which was perform a narrative in front of other people. To play this game is to link hands with a long chain of poets, performers, and translators, as well as with the heroes and monsters of their imaginations, all of them equipped with stories of their own, just under the surface of simple categories. It's up to you to imagine the complications, to engage with the potential for pain as well as for courage, and to ultimately build upon all of this to craft your own path from an ancient text to a modern understanding. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment, share it with a friend. I'm on Instagram at Triple Sword. You can follow my Facebook page, Triple Bladed Sword, teaching fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And finally, if you have something you'd like me to talk about in a future episode, please leave a suggestion or a question in the comments, and I'll do my best to get to it. Thanks for tuning in today. Thank you for tuning in for the past year. You guys, you know, when I go and I see the numbers, I know people are listening. That's very exciting for me, and it, you know, it it lights the fires that uh, get me, you know, excited to sit down here and to record something for you, uh, to have this conversation ongoing through podcast here at Triple Bladed Swords.